You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. You know, if you've listened to enough of the episodes of Labor Relations Radio, you may have picked up on the fact that I, thankfully, no longer have kids in the public school system. Nevertheless, I have been following a lot of the debates going on about teacher union influence and their agendas in the school curriculum. And in fact, we've done a couple of episodes about the education system. And I also think I've mentioned before that how oftentimes I'll see a news item or a research paper or something that piques my interest and will often reach out to whomever it is that wrote the article or research paper or whatever and invite them onto the podcast. I say this to give you a little bit of context in terms of this episode. This past weekend, I saw a series of tweets randomly on Twitter about Becky Pringle the president of the NEA, or National Education Association, which is a three million member union that represents the majority of unionized teachers throughout the United States. And the way she was presenting herself at a recent conference down in Orlando, in an NEA conference, and the tweet mentioned how her performance was Hitlerian or Hitlerian. So using the term Hitler is a pretty strong type of statement. And as I looked at it, I realized, okay, it wasn't being presented in a hyperbolic way. In fact, as the individual went on to reference Saul Alinsky in a later tweet about the NEA, it was more of a comment on her style as opposed to her substance. So I contacted the individual whose name is Paul Rossi. Now, Mr. Rossi, as it turns out, is a co-founder of Terra Firma. It's a group that I've never heard of, but according to its website, is a website of, I'm sorry, is a group of K-12 teachers alarmed by the rise of illiberal agendas in education, working to restore integrity and quality to our profession. Now, looking at his bio, Mr. Rossi also happens to be a veteran mathematics and philosophy teacher who blew the whistle on woke indoctrination at Grace Church School in Manhattan in 2021. And he's researched and written extensively about the politicization of education for the Wall Street Journal, the Foundation of Intolerance and Racism, Parents Unite, and Legal Insurrection Foundation. He's also presented his findings at the Manhattan Institute, Parents Defending Freedom, Moms for Liberty, and Education Veritas. So based on his tweets and and his bio, I invited Mr. Rossi onto Labor Relations Radio, and here's our conversation. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Paul Rossi, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. And we don't know each other other than a couple DMs on Twitter after you posted something over the weekend that intrigued me. But can you give the listeners some of your background? Because I, I was more intrigued about your background, math and philosophy. Sure, Peter. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, 
I was a latecomer to education. I'm a, I'm a math teacher. Uh, and I started a career change in my early 40s. I grew a little bored with what I had been doing, which was I was a technical producer for a website for HBO.com. And uh, I wanted something that would bring more meaning to my life. So I, I, I went into education. I learned, uh, I got a master's in educational psychology, and I started uh, teaching test prep around the city. I taught at some Title I schools in, in the Brooklyn, New York, where I lived. And um, then I applied for a private school position at a new private school called Grace Church School in Manhattan. I, I, they liked my demo lesson. I was pretty good with the technology, and so they hired me. And I worked there for nine years until 2021. I'm 54 now. Uh, in 2021, I, um, I had been seeing a lot of distressing things at the school around issues of what they called anti-racism, um, critical race theory informed or infused curricula, and um, how it was affecting the kids, and it was causing more disharmony and, and you know, I think really had a negative impact. So I spoke out about that at a, at a Zoom meeting, which was racially segregated, actually. There were, there were white-identified students and faculty in one Zoom room, and then there were BIPOC, uh, Black and Indigenous people of color in this other Zoom room. And uh, we were told, essentially the kids were all told that they were white supremacy um, infected. Uh, I objected to that. Um, that led to a series of events, which ultimately led to my losing my contract. But now before I published an article on Barry Weiss's Substack, which your listeners can find, it's called I Refuse to Stand By While My Students Are Indoctrinated. And I spent the last two years, the most recent two years, uh, writing, um, writing pieces for various outlets covering the private school beat uh, on culture war issues. Uh, so I, I, my focus was on the National Association of Independent Schools, which is a consortium of professional association, but it's really run more like a cartel, uh, which pushes a lot of professional development and um, hiring uh, of a certain ideological bent into these elite private schools. We're talking schools in, in the New York, L.A., um, Chicago, the big blue cities, as well as, you know, about a thousand schools across the country. Uh, they could be upwards of 30000 to $60,000 a year. And uh, recently... Uh, I'm going to get back into teaching. I'm going to start uh, this fall at a charter school in the Bronx called Vertex Partnership Academies. It's run by Ian Rowe, who is a senior fellow at, at the AEI Institute, or AEI. Uh, I'm really excited about that. It's going to be a school that focuses on agency, on the cardinal virtues, and really just, yeah, it's an IB program, so it's, it's very challenging, and I'm really just excited to get back into the classroom. And that's basically my my story. So I've never, um, I don't know much about, uh, unions. I will, I'll be honest. Uh, I'm a sort of, as part of a group that I run called Terra Firma Teaching Alliance, I've heard a lot of stories from teachers. Uh, it's a network of educators that, that we offer peer support and counseling for. And they, I've heard a lot of some stories about, uh, what's going on with teachers and their unions. We even have some high ranking, you know, union members. And I, I picked up a little, and I, I had come across this clip of uh, Becky Pringle, who is the head of the NEA, the, the National Education Association, um, 
a speech that she gave recently, I think even just about a month a month ago now, uh, or maybe three weeks ago at their national conference. Down in, and yeah, I, down in Orlando. In Orlando, right. And uh, I found it um, striking, um, a little bit disturbing. I tweeted about it. I, I made a clip of it. It's still on YouTube as far as I know. And you, your listeners can go see it. Um, and her performance was so bombastic and uh, sort of outrageously megalomaniacal that I, I did make a Hitler comparison. I violated Godwin's law. I, yes, that, that's what um, I first noticed. You, you yeah. used the term Hitler. Well, I don't even know how to pronounce this. Hitler, Hitlerian performance? Yeah, Hitlerian, (laughs) Hitleresque. I could have gone with Hitleresque. And I wanted to be specific about the performance. It's not necessarily the content. I don't believe that Becky Pringle is going to try some Lebensraum. I don't think she needs to. I think that that the union uh, has a a certain control on things, at least now. Uh, So so Bit of a dig there. We'll play this for the listeners. And so they can hear it for themselves. Um, okay. And I've, I did a post on it using your tweet, as a matter of fact. Hang on two seconds. I can hear Chief Seattle crying out to us, urging us to remember when you know who you are, when your mission is clear and you burn with the inner fire of an unbreakable will. No cold can touch your heart. No deluge can dampen your purpose. And yay, you are those stars in the darkness. Your light will not be dimmed. Your purpose will drive you in a righteous fight for freedom because you know who you are. Right. Yes. You know who you are. You are the NDA. Our mission is clear. We will advocate for the rights of education professionals and we will change this world for our students with that inner fire we will never bend. We will never be broken because we are the NBA. And we will always, always do what we must to be worthy of our students. Thank you, NBA, for all you do every day for our babies and for our colleagues and for your states and for this country. Okay, so that's Becky Pringle. Now, Paul, let me ask you, um, was that the first time you've seen Pringle speak? Because I noticed no, you had uh, a couple of other tweets with her. Yeah, and I, I had come across her at a conference. Someone had uh, slipped in a clip that's maybe just a two-second clip of, of that speech, and I was intrigued, and so I wanted to hear the whole thing. So I listened, went back and listened to the whole, it's about a 30-minute speech. And uh, in the course of listening to that speech, I found where there was one from 2022, and then there was one from 2021. And so I realized this was not an aberration. This is uh, her shtick. 
uh, it works, I guess. It's very motivating, rally the troops kind of thing. Um, but it really scary. It's scary to me it's, because it's I don't a, see the the NEA or the AFT, UFT unions as being very good for the country at this point, to be frank. What I know about it. It was the one in Orlando was very inflammatory mm-hmm. and obviously political. So it's oh yeah. Now, let me back up for just a minute because you touched on um you're at a charter school, a private school, and that was not unionized, right? Or was it? Not to my knowledge. Uh the private school I was at until twenty twenty one, definitely not. This charter school, I believe there are some union members there, but I I don't know. I won't be obligated to join uh, or I, I can't imagine I would be pressured to join. Uh, so I guess what's surprising to me is um, we hear the term CRT and maybe you can break that down for us in terms of what it means. Cause those of us with kids who are no longer in school, we see the term CRT bandied about back and forth in the media, mm-hmm. social media, et cetera. What is CRT? And the surprising part was that this was a private school that you're having that segregation mm-hmm. take place in. Sure. Um, and it, it is, it can be very confusing. Um, essentially, if I was going to give it a very the brief description, I can. It's a series of, uh, series of related uh, assumptions and uh, presumptions about American society and uh that racism is not only a historical phenomenon in America, but it is actually penetrated so deeply and is so systemic in American society that there really hasn't been any meaningful progress in racial relations. And that society is continues, continues to be organized to benefit white people and to subjugate black people and, and other minorities, other minoritized groups is the phrase. And so it is a lens through which all present uh, current events as well as past events are looked at. Um, and they, they use that language. It's a lens. So it's, it's, it's talked about as an interpretive vehicle. But there is an element which is often not recognized in critical race theory, which is the praxis element. So it's not only about analyzing society in this very negative way, I think, but also about transfer, transforming society. And in education, there's a seri- there are several educational theorists uh, that are putting this into praxis, they call it, for transforming society. And the student, you, you know, parents, children are a vehicle for that social transformation. So what matters uh, to many teachers who are coming out of the educational degree programs uh, which is highly informed with this idea of American society, is that their main job, their most important mission, is not to teach reading, writing, math- mathematics, science, languages. It's to teach social consciousness around issues of race and gender. Gender is a related concept, but it it's, it's, plays out a little differently. In the effort to make a better world. So this idea that they become change agents. So so students are uh, to be these change agents who are, by deeply analyzing their own identities and, and 
submitting their biases to scrutiny by themselves and their peers and their teachers. They can transcend to some degree the social, socially informed uh, habits that they've gained around privilege and oppression. And by doing so, they can uh, come to a, uh, a deep awareness and, and that by itself is a kind of a, an inner transformation that they will then project onto the world when they gain, um, you know, access to, to jobs and, and higher managerial positions and so on, which we've already seen in, in government, in human, human resources. And so we're, we're going, we're undergoing a kind of cultural revolution in this country that's guided uh, or, or really seeded by education. And so for me, it's, it's extremely important that parents understand uh, that this is going on. It's, it's embedded in the materials. Now, it's, it's interesting because many uh, critics of the CRT, uh, crit, the, the CRT critical people, I will say, will say that it's not taught in schools. And uh, there are some ways in which that's true, and there are some ways in which that is not true. Um, if I told you that, um, well, you know, they're not teaching the scientific method in, in chemistry class because they're not reading Francis Bacon, uh, would that convince you that they weren't teaching the scientific method? No. Right. So they will use this kind of rhetorical game to say that since they're not teaching Kimberly Crenshaw, uh, you know, or they're not teaching, um, you know, Dan, uh, uh, Daniel Bell, Derek Bell, in which those are the sort of intellectual uh, luminaries in the critical race theory movement that came out of critical legal studies in the in the eighties uh, and nineties that somehow the the seventh graders and the sixth graders and then even the kindergartners aren't getting this. I've, I've spent a lot of time going through and watching hundreds and hundreds of hours of teacher training where I can clearly see that what they are doing is they're creating, um, they're using critical race theory to embed in, in children this idea, this significance, the, the overwhelming salience of a racial identity. And through that, that, um, through that imposition of a racial identity on themselves, the introjection of that racial identity, that is to inform their political, a political relationship to the world and a mission to uh, bring equity, uh, inclusion, diversity, all of these things come out of this, this introjection of, of racial and gender identity in children. And I find that it, it, it really diminishes, um, what education should be, and it corrupts the students' developing identities. We all have identities, and those identities um, emerge through the individuals coping with the world. Um, but what, what I've seen is that there's a specific political way that is prescriptive for these students, in, and, and that's something that I find uh, interesting and disturbing that I'm, I'm trying to raise awareness about. So there's a lot of avenues that I want to go down on this. Um, it seems to me, so we've spent decades, maybe beginning in the 60s or, or thereabouts, of trying to establish a colorblind society. This seems to be twisting that 180 on its 
face. Mm-hmm. And, and which is problematic because I've also seen, um, and it's not all the time, but here and there, there's certain pockets in the country where people want to be segregated now based on race and coming from the African-American culture. So that, yeah. that seems to be problematic. Um, on top of that, there's, there's the gender equation and I've, I've talked to people here and there. So, um, we've all seen it in the press with the gender affirming care debate and all that sort of stuff, but that seems to be eroding. I want to say like a person's psychological well-being. And I, I don't know if that's, you know, we have a, a collectivization going on across the country as opposed to individualism that mm-hmm. some of this is playing into, but then it's also an escaping of reality, which, you know, eventually that's going to go, forgetting the gender debate, it's going to go into other areas, like what's real and what's not real. And, and it's like, it seems like a lot of this you're seeing kind of firsthand. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, if I had to boil it down, it's it really comes down to identity, a reframing of what an identity is um, and how that's used as a lever. And, and it's a form of um, brainwashing, in my view. Uh, we used to have this idea of character. People talk about character. What is character? Character is how a person's habits, um, how they confront um you know, adversity and how they deal with adversity and all children deal with adversity. Uh, Identity, um, by contrast, is a kind of a a tribal allegiance uh, in which it fixes you in relation to a power structure as a group. And so there are certain things that, um, certain behaviors that they're, that they're instilling, which are inherently political in the sense that you are fighting a power structure or appealing to a power structure um, instead of w- making the, the freedom that you have when you develop your character to make choices that based on your individual hopes and dreams and aspirations um, and preferences, right? So when you, when you groupify these things um, and make them expressly political, it's a corruption, uh, and it leads to s- several difficulties um, for children uh, as they are maturing through the system, which is um, pushing this on them. Let me let me ask you. You used the term, by the way, um, that I think I was looking for. We seem to have devolved into a tribalistic society. Everybody belongs to a tribe, mm-hmm. and and that. You know, when you have tribalistic society, that foregoes the individual. You're either in this camp or that camp or this camp, and your individual rights eventually get stomped on. Yeah, and I think, you know, we do have a tribe. We have, there's very, there is no way you can sort of exist in the world without tribes. And that could be, you know, myself growing up, I had an ethnic identity. I'm Italian. Um, and it informed part of me, but really I never doubted that we were that the people I went to school with, we were all Americans and, you know, and our national identity is extremely binding thing. And it's a very necessary thing, in my view. And it's also not a prescriptive thing. 
you can belong to, uh, you can be an American. You can, you can align with the ideals of America um, and have a fellowship uh, around that without people telling you exactly the right way to be an American. I think historically there, there were, you know, you talk about the forties and fifties, there were certain things that you couldn't be an American if you were a communist, for example. Um, right. I think today we have uh, eroded national identity to the degree where we really do have a set of competing power interest groups around say ethnic identity uh, or racial identity, uh, which have been leveraged and and sort of blessed by our legal system in many disturbing ways to enable that even further. Um, And I don't think that's healthy either. What do you, what do you think the end goal is? Well, I don't want to be conspiratorial. Um, but I do think <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> some some think, conspiracies I mean, are proven right after time. So, right. Well, I do think, uh, the intellectual fathers or mothers of this movement go back hundreds, you know, at least a hundred years. They tend to be informed by a collectivist ideology. I don't want to call it Marxism or crude Marxism or, but it is infused with it to some degree. And it's always looking for a way to sow discord in the, system it's trying to transform as a, as a mechanism. Um, I don't think, I think a lot of the people that are aligned in this way from, you know, your garden variety, uh, progressive who eats at whole foods, still all the way down to your diehard core tanky, right? There's, there's, there's a certain range. I don't want to impugn their motives. I think they do have high minded ideals, but they're so focused on, creative destruction as a, as a means to that end that whereby they believe, and this kind of goes back to Rousseau, they believe that, you know, everywhere men are free, but they're born into chains. I may be mangling that quote, but essentially the idea is that society is, is a prison that requires people to behave certain ways. And if you could only break those chains, it would liberate the true uh, goodness of humanity. I don't see the world that way. I don't, I don't, um, I don't think that's a um, that's an accurate view of the world. A friend of mine told me she's a she's a liberal like me uh, until late in her life, and she struggled around changing her mind and becoming more conservative. She said, "Listen, Paul, you know I'm I realize I'm not conservative. I'm still an open-minded liberal, but it's the world that's conservative. That is the world uh, nature, man's nature is can be dangerous." And it needs to be, uh, it needs to have structure. Um, and if you don't have that structure, you don't impart that structure to children, then you are not going to have a functioning society for very long. And what will replace it will not be a good thing. Uh, because we all have a, we all have a nature. Man has a nature. That nature is fallen. Um, I'm not a religious guy, but I think it's, it's helpful to think of things in these terms. We're not all beautiful angels underneath. We're also devils. So we do need structure. We need habits which are which delay gratification uh, and allow us to be productive and think about our fellow man. And the more, um, you know, if we if we try to create a society without that, um, uh, we're not gonna. It's not gonna end well. Um, and I, mean, I can already hear the objections to my my last statement. So go ahead. 
Let me ask you a question. When you use the term liberal, you're not talking political liberal. You're talking more classical liberal. So yes, uh, yes. So your your um, friend that you're talking about wasn't necessarily a you know pot smoking hippie in the '60s, but more of a classical libertarian, not necessarily politically, but you know, liberal libertarian minded. Yeah, you know, it's it's actually. I mean, I think she was the the pot smoking variety. It's why I'm not going to okay. give her name. But you know, <laughs> I, I think uh, liberal. I think like a lot of the when you're in your 20s, even if you're Gen X, you're kind of coming out of the 60s and you're thinking, well, um, I'm a, you want to be progressive. If you grow up in a, in a coastal city, you know, there's this kind of, uh, there's basically an archetype of the, of the blue church. Uh, and, you know, I, I was definitely that. Um, but I've shifted teaching actually shifted my perspective a lot because I started to see in the children that this anything goes mindset around progressivism and also the politicization of identity was not, was not helping. Well, it used to be, um, and this is probably kind of the political side of it, but liberals used to stand for quote freedom, you know, Mm -hmm. rebelling against the man, so to speak. But now it seems as though, liberals are the man and they're demanding allegiance to a particular mindset. You know, it's the whole free speech debate that's going on right now and whether certain speech should be banned because it's not in accordance with whatever the government's dictating. You know, we just went through the period with the vaccines and, you know, the banning on Twitter and the government involvement and all of that stuff. Well, I think there's always an elite uh, when the elite um, you saw this transfer of, of elites. The, the president, whoever is the president, is not as important as who's actually, well, who are the bureaucrats behind the scenes. Right. So as this, this sort of transfer upward of, of people that are post-60s, you, I think you saw this progressive mindset filter into even like the FBI or, the, you know, these, these formerly extremely, you know, conservative um, executive entities or, or administrative entities. And when that happens, then they're the man. And so there's going to be right. whoever is in power is always going to be seeking to censor to some degree. So as those, you know, the, those positions trans, well, the people in those positions trans, transfer, we start to see that. Well, and I think part of the um, lack of understanding out there, kind of bringing this back of education to education is why are they targeting the children? And, you know, whether it's the gender stuff, if it's the CRT, like, and again, back to Mm -hmm. your original background, it surprised me that you're seeing this in private schools where we hear about it in the public schools, did not realize that it's happening in private schools too. I think it may be even worse. Um, Hmm. And this is why I'm very, I'm split on, questions of school choice. I'm not a, I'm not a school choice, uh, rah, rah, gung ho guy. Um, I think what, what happens is just like in, for example, industry, right? Private industry corporations. Why did all the corporations go woke? If, if, if in private industry, how did that happen? Um, that's the same thing in private schools. So private schools are just private businesses with, with endowments and, you know, they collect uh, massive donations and they buy buildings and they create programs and they, and, you know, the, 
if the colleges change and they go woke, well, then the high schools, the private high schools have to change because they need to wean the kids on it. Pardon me if you're, if you're listening to me use the word woke as a pejorative. Uh, what I mean is the sort of critical social justice progressive uh, mindset, which, which is, I think, the, I want to call it like a clade of beliefs. Uh, I'm not going to like, I don't want to demonize it because I think it, that it's just a natural phenomenon. But, the, but those high schools, private high schools, are shepherding the elite, the sons of the elite, to succeed in these places. So, of course, they have to change. And then the elementary schools have to change. And then so private. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I think that's true for the elite schools. Now, I, I know that there are thousands of private schools. There are Catholic schools. There are classical charter schools. There's Christian schools, you know, Jewish schools, you know, all kinds of schools, Muslim schools. And they... I don't think they have the same pressure. And so I think ultimately school choice is a good thing as long as it's a true market, right? As long as there aren't billions, billions of dollars flowing into these sort of big box schools that are going to have a certain agenda that's going to be tied, still tied to the state because of, you know, uh, educational savings accounts. So they need to get accredited. And there's a lot of, a lot of, gotchas in creating a market in, in, uh, it was school choice that I think people really need to be clear eyed about. And I will also say this, if you're a parent who is looking to private schools to, um, you know, you have less of a voice in private schools. There's That's this feeling like, okay, if you, if you do well, we'll just go down the street to the other private school. It is incredibly high switching cost to pull your kid out of a school because a private school, you know, what happens if it changes ownership and now suddenly they're teaching you something else? You're going to pull your kid out in 10th grade. They're going to lose all their friends. They're going to go kicking and screaming. You're going to send them down the street to, a, to another school. And you don't have, you, there's no school board for a private school. You can't go there and bang on a lectern and demand to be, you know, to have your voice heard because you sign a contract in a private school and it's a yearly contract. And I've seen these contracts. My own school had contracts. And over the years, as more and more parents have gotten agitated in the parent movement, those contacts, those contracts have become stricter and stricter. So now if you're even if you post anything on social media critical of the school, you can be kicked out. And you know, they can say, Well, we've we've you know, where are you gonna go? Back to the public school? And so well, they they're able they will be able to use the failing public schools as an incentive to, you know, kowtow to whatever they're pushing in the private school. It's interesting because I think there's this, and it sounds like it's a misbelief that, you know, these public schools who are, you know, the teachers unions are being the agents of this wokeism. And you're kind of describing a trickle down wokeism from college down Mm -hmm. to high school. But there's this misbelief that, yeah, I don't like what's happening in the public schools. My kid's not getting enough education. They're all into wokeism. And so I'm going to pull him or her out and send them to private school. And those may be even worse. Well, it depends, right? You just buyer beware, right? So, so a quote unquote good school, um, is probably more of a risk for, you know, the progressive mind virus, uh, than say, um, a smaller, less elite, less prestigious, uh, you know, Catholic school or, um, uh, 
uh, traditional school, religious school, classical, you know, classical school. So be careful and, and make sure. Uh, and I will say this admission, admissions, people lie. They want the dollars. They want you, they want the check. And so they're going to tell you what they think you want to hear. So you have to actually, you know, get the curriculum. You have to see if you can't just show up in a classroom and everybody looks happy and go home. You really got to spend some time asking tough questions about what they're teaching, what's in the library, look at the books. Uh, and, um, you know, there's not a, I think if you're, if you're a parent with with children, I don't know how many, I hope that the market gets built if school choice comes, um, is sweeping the nation, but it's one thing to sign a law, pass a law. And it's another thing to create a, a, a robust market. So we'll see. That's interesting. The, what I kind of hear you saying, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's almost better to, since the private schools don't have boards where you can go pound on the lectern, it's almost better if you've got issues with your public school to stay, fight, and fix it, or at least fight. That's, yeah, I mean, or home. I got to say, if I was, if I counsel parents all the time, I will say homeschool. Like, if you can at all do it. And I talk to very, very wealthy parents. <laughs> And they are the least, you know, they're very, very, they're reluctant to homeschool. And the reason why they're reluctant to homeschool is not because they can't afford it or they, it's because of the loss of prestige, to be honest. So prestige is what is what is important. Um, prestige and, and social networking and, and having, you know, networking for jobs and things like that. And, uh, but I got to be honest, like not a lot of parents actually care. Some do, but not a lot of them, not the majority of them even care about the quality of the education that their children are getting. It's an ugly truth, but, uh, but it's, I, I've seen it. Um, they, it's maybe third or fourth on the list. Hmm. Um, yeah. Now, this is I'm talking about like upmarket schools, right? And I, I don't want to generalize. I think there are, you know, really caring parents out there that want their kids to be to get a great education. And they're in a bind because you sort of the devil, there's the devil, you know, the devil, you don't out of the frying pan into the fire. If you stay with the public school in a, you know, if you're in a blue state, you have, you could pound on that lectern all you want, but unless you can flip that school board, or even if you do flip the school board, um, you know, there may be state mandates. And so you're, you're fighting this uphill battle through the democratic process. Um, by the time you win, your child might be out. Right. Because, you know, uh, uh, and private schools also know this and they rely on that because they figure, well, four years in high school, they're going to be out. So or, you know, they're going to move through the system and and we'll just placate them and cash the check and then they're gone. But it's a problem in that, you you know, you don't really have you only have your uh, you know, you really only have skin in the game as long as your children are, are there. Um, right. So it's difficult to create a, a evolving group with a special interest group of parents uh, over time because there's so much attrition and turnover. Yeah, I guess I never really looked at it that way. The um, I don't know if you heard the podcast I did recently with a teacher. She went from California now to the southeast, and so as we're talking about some of the, well, I don't remember if it's gender ideology or the political wokeism. Um, she was more in a red County in California. So she didn't see a lot of it, but she 
hears about it now, having left. And the area where she is now in the southeast is more of a red area, so she doesn't see it a lot there. But it sounded though as though it's more in pockets of, you know, if it's L.A. versus, you know, some county. I don't know the counties in California, but cities more specifically. Yeah, but I will say I've seen, I've heard, I've heard stories about uh, the cap capture of the of public schools in Oklahoma, you know, mm -hmm. in red states, North Dakota, right? The reason is because no matter the how the people in the state may vote, um, education as an industry is dominated by um, politically progressive, even radically progressive people that are coming out in their careers, coming out of the ed schools. And so they'll go wherever the schools are and uh, school boards too. Like it tends to be that the people that go into education are looking to to do good for the world. And, you know, what's the worst, you know, what's, who are the people you really got to be worried about the do-gooders? Um, so that's, you know, they have a certain agenda. Their vision of goodness um, involves this political program. Uh, so you just have to be very uh, vigilant about that and really aggressive sometimes to, um, to push for what, what you know is right for your child. And that's why, you know, a group like Moms for Liberty, I was at their conference in Philadelphia. Um, I think that, you know, they're actually a very positive group. Uh, I know they've had some controversy, but I, I'm, I have pretty good responses to the accusations that have been leveled against them. I just don't see that uh, slowing them down at all. Yeah, I've, I've seen they've been demonized a little bit. Um, I need to look into them a little bit more. I have a, a friend of mine uh, in fact, he was the best man at my wedding. We grew up together, you know, high school, grade school before that. And he is now a high school teacher in the Southwest. And I remember because he, he'd worked construction, he worked corporate for a number of years and started teaching around 40. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's got his master's degree, et cetera. And he, he commented, he's a member of the teachers union too, by the way, which is interesting because he's not necessarily a, pro-union kind of guy, but he mentioned when he first joined that the reason he did that was due to the insurance that the teachers union provides in case they're, the teachers are accused of something that, you know, they have, they don't have to go out and hire their own lawyers and all that stuff. In any case, he mentioned when he first started teaching, you know, the problem with a lot of the teachers today are that they go straight from college right into teaching and don't have any kind of real world experience. So right. if they're ideologues coming out of college, they're going to be ideologues in the classroom. And he got that just from by sitting in the, the teacher's lounge and listening to, to them all complain about things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is more oh, than yeah. a decade ago. It was an interesting commentary, and I'd, I'd love to get him on the podcast. Our, our schedules are just different. But Oh, yeah, and there's a, you know, that's the kind of thing that's missing is is the wisdom, I think, and that's why you know, historically teachers have been older people. This idea that young people are, should be teachers is really, in my view, kind of the blind leading the blind. Um, right. And it's a particular kind of blindness. And, and I will also say that even apart from all the political stuff, let's just, you know, if we just carve out the woke problem, there is a related problem, which is the pedagogical approach to teaching, which I think is one of the, almost a, a, a 
deeper problem uh, in that it's informed by a, this idea of a student-centered education um, that the children, and they, are, they are related in the sense that the child has an innate um, understanding or an innate curiosity and that they should be the ones to lead and discover and, and uh, you know, they can, by trial and error, you're just there to be a guide on the side and facilitate this process of the child coming to understanding. I think that is a, a terrible injustice uh, to the child and to society because they're children, okay? They don't know things. It's adults who right. know things, all right? And I, you know, I think it's an it leads to this incredibly lazy teaching. It doesn't mean that you're drilling things into their heads, but there are certain things that they need to know to be uh, educated adults. And it's your job as a teacher to teach those things. So part of the pedagogical corruption has been the, the universal takeover of ed schools with this, this philosophy. Uh, and, and there's a political aspect to that through the teachings of Paolo Freire. He was a Brazilian Marxist. Uh, he wrote a book called Pedagogy of the Oppressed and several other texts which are you know, foundational to the, the moral purpose and the pedagogical approach. But the general, like the softer way that pedagogy is bad is just kind of comes from this progressive tradition, which is not the only tradition. There's actually an entirely different teacher-centered tradition, which I think is a lot, which is what we need right now, because the results in schools uh, are abysmal. And it was happening before the pandemic. Like, this is, this is unacceptable. And I think we need to just not take it anymore. We need a revolution in education. We need to start getting people involved in this issue. When you have 18% of black kids in New York City are proficient in, in reading and math, like, that's, that's it. That's unacceptable. 40% of the, of the white students, so I guess on average, like, 30% are proficient. And this is not just New York City. It's in major urban areas across the country, like, we are going to be, uh, you know, we're going to be dog meat for uh, all these other countries, which are just kicking our butts uh, in education. And we need to, we need to instantiate an entirely new paradigm of how children, uh, what works for children. And that also includes discipline. It also includes high expectations for behavior. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, that's not being harsh to children. That's being loving to children is to give them that structure because they are children. They are not bad. You know, there's nothing bad about a child that, it, that gets distracted or is lazy. Those things are normal. They're completely normal. And there's me, nothing wrong with them. Let me you ask you, them. where, I guess, you know, I see a lot where the teachers' unions, whether it's Becky Pringle or Randy Weingarten, are being demonized and they're being, you know, I don't remember who it was that called Randy Weingarten the most dangerous person in America a couple of years mm -hmm. ago. But is it coming from the teachers or is it coming from academia, which is then instilling it into the teachers? In other words, okay, is it the colleges? Yeah. You know, where's the source of this that is infecting like a virus? Yeah. It's know? a two pronged thing. So you do have, so you have this vector that's coming from the, from the from academia and the education schools, um, and so that's that's feeding the pipeline of new teachers, 
And then you also have the unions, which are, you know, 95% of their, of their political donations are to Democrats. And maybe like even higher than that. And the Democrats are, you know, informed by this. This is the quote unquote science. Uh, so it's a, it's an, it's a whole ecosystem we're talking about here. And if you are a teacher, like I've met several teachers, um, who see this, who are being asked to teach this stuff or seeing it coming from, you know, the union reps or the national level. Uh, and they're not comfortable with it. They don't like it. Um, but it's all around them and it's something that the administrators expect. And it's, it's this thing, you know, it's very difficult to, to stand up to it and to say, you know, I won't do that because you, you, you're essentially a heretic in this ecosystem. So if you want to leave the union, you can do that uh, after Janice there, you mentioned insurance that the, that the, you know, there are alternatives available. There are associations that will cover you and it's not expensive. The other thing is if you get into trouble and the, and you, the, a lot of times the union won't even take your case if it's, if you're an anti-woke person, because they don't want that. They don't want to be associated with that. Right. And if you don't take the, and if, and if you do take the case, they'll give you a lawyer and that lawyer may be not so experienced. They may be, you know, a 20 something themselves, uh, uh, not to be ageist here, but you know, it, it tends to be that they're, um, the union lawyers may not be the best. And so you're kind of locked in. Um, and of course, like it's, you know, whatever the union negotiates on your behalf in terms of your contract, um, you're entitled to that. Even after you leave the union, they will, they will try things like to make you scared that you're going to lose your pension. You're going to lose your, um, insurance and all stuff. And it's, 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 um, it's not true. Um, they are required to that because actually there's a special law, which you can't, you can't bargain for yourself. The union has put you know, has gotten things into law that give them the exclusive right to bargain for you. So you're not actually a free rider because they didn't give you a chance to, to yeah, bargain for yourself. So exclusive representation. You know, there's a, yeah, there's a lot of uh, obfuscation and gaslighting of teachers who want to leave the union. Uh, so, but they definitely have options and, you know, often it's, I've heard horror stories where the union, if you leave the union, the union will collude with administrators to come down on you. Um, and it's tough. It's tough because you're fighting this behemoth. Uh, but even with all that negative pressure, uh, you know, they're losing people. They're losing people. And I think it's healthy. You know, they get they're, they're, when If they lose dues, they lose power. And they know their power comes from the dues. So, you know, any, anything to starve the beast scares them a great deal. Well, I wonder if, um, so you mentioned the term, or you used the term ecosystem. Is it possible, <clears throat> excuse me, to set up a separate ecosystem? Like coming from, mm-hmm. <clears throat> coming from the colleges, you know, on the one side to the students on the other being supported. You know, if, if there's a ecosystem that just teaches reading, writing, and arithmetic, can you set one up that way? Is it possible mm-hmm. or are we too far down the road of we have to deal in this ecosystem only? No, I think you definitely need alternatives. You need, you need both. Right. So, um, and this is the same problem we have in this, in society today, right? You have, if you get canceled on one social media platform, we'll build your own platform. Well, if you get canceled, 
you know, on that phone, maybe the bank won't be your payment processor. So you got to have your own payment right. processor. Right. If you lose your own payment pro- you're like, so you get into this situation where there are so many contingencies and dependencies that you do need another ecosystem. You want to create an ecosystem that, you know, the, the hope is that if you start to create a viable ecosystem where someone can, you can shepherd kids through, like say heritage has a school, uh, and it has an ed school. You start to see Florida has an ed school. I know that that's sort of on the map for for the people in Florida. Uh, then you can sort of create this little functioning system. And, you you know, if it's successful, it's got to work, right? It can't just be for show. And it works. And and um, it works for the people that use it. Um, that'll put pressure on the behemoth to change because it's going to see where which way the winds are blowing. But it's like it's almost like a girlfriend, right? If you if you if you leave your you know if your girlfriend doesn't love you anymore and it's a toxic relationship and you leave your girlfriend, you know you can't be checking your text messages like, oh, is she she trying to contact me? Um, you have to just sever all ties. You have to be like, look, we're done. Um, you have failed. I'm we're going to create this new thing. And if you want to come around later with your hat in your hand and you want to try to you know. You do what we're doing, great, um, but we're not waiting for you. Um, there can't be any longing looks backwards at the at the behemoth, like, why don't you do what, what I want? Why don't you be who I want you to be? That can't happen. Um, you just have to cut bait and move on, and whoever comes with you, great, um, and just do the best thing. Do the best you can. Make the best alternative system you can, And that's but it's piecemeal, right? So you got to create as billions of dollars – uh, to create an ecosystem. So you have to get startup capital. You have to get people excited and interested and trust you. And unfortunately, uh, you know, conservative money is conservative, right? That's why right. they're conservative. So they're not, you know, they're not George Soros with, with holding bags um, and like, you know, spilling, um, throwing dollars at people um, for startup, you know, nonprofits and stuff like that. So you just, I think it's going to happen. I think it's just going to be slow going and it's going to take a couple really clear successes um, by first movers to, to start us uh, to start the investment flowing in the right direction. And, you know, it's, I, I think this is a generational struggle project struggle. It's going to take decades to fix. And unfortunately there is a lost generation um, which is, you know, uh, uh, I'm afraid uh, we're going to have to keep it together and, and uh, you know, try to deal with that. Well, that lost generation, um, you know, is, is my conversation with the Sarah, the teacher that, you know, I said, is it different coming out of the pandemic versus going into it? And she said, yeah, it's hugely different, different because you've had kids basically at home for two years this isn't nationwide, this is in certain parts of the country, that, you know, they're scrolling through their social media, they're coming into the classrooms less empathetic than they were, Mm -hmm. which I found that very interesting. But if you take that from, say, kindergarten or even preschool all the way to high school, that is a generation right there. I know, I know. And it's, it's, um, well, the first thing you got to do is just you got to get rid of the phone. I mean, the phone has to go into a bag when they show up at the door, and then you give it back to them at the end of the day. That's that is a 
absolute must because yeah, the phone is cancer. The phone is just like attention cancer. Uh, even if it's, uh, you know, I used to take the phones when the kids came into class and put them in, you know, put them at, I had a charging station. So it'd be like, okay, put your phones in the charging station. Um, and then, you know, at least they're charging and you can, you can collect them when you get out of class. Oh, but my God, like it would get, you know, they would hand in burner phones for the charger and they'd have their own thing, you know, under, under the table, or they would go to the bathroom and, you know, if I wasn't looking at them, they'd quickly grab the phone. Um, and they would look longingly at the phone. So I had to hide it behind a curtain so they couldn't see the phones. Like it's, it's the, the, the mental, it's an umbilical cord to this. It's extremely, um, addictive and the people who make these things know they're addictive and they won't even let their own kids use them, uh, with good reason. So why should you let your kids use them when they're supposed to be paying attention to something else? Um, so, you know, at, 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 at this point, and then as soon as they get them, they're in the hallways using them. So it's like the only, the only real solution is to, um, collect them at the beginning and lock them up and get them back at the end. Yet yeah, is that happening anywhere? In a, you know, in, if you have a private school, which is gutsy enough to do it, or a charter school, which is gutsy enough to do it, I, th- I, I know there are some that are doing it. Um, I think we're going to do it at our school, which I'm excited about. Um, you know, parents, the problem is in the, in the expensive schools, the parents always have special pleading, and they're very used to getting their way. So, right. you know, it's like, well, you know, we are going to the Hamptons, and we need to contact you know, uh, not to, not to trivialize this because these are all good kids and they're good people, but it's just the way, it's just the way it is. Right. Um, so you have to really draw the line and say, this is, you know, this is what's best for your child. Um, and many parents want that. Like, they're like, you're right. The phones are cancer. We gotta, we gotta, I'm, I will, I want a school like that. There are, there are, if there was a school that opened up in Manhattan like this, there would be lines around the block. I mean, it would be just, if there was a private school, you know, that just said, we're not like these other private schools. We're going to do things the right way. Um, there would be lines around the block, but it takes, what does it take? 10 million to open a private school in New York with the real estate and everything. Hmm. And then you've got a, you know, it's a big undertaking and large capital projects like that uh, in education private money it's 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 not um it's not easy it sounds like there's a definite need there's a huge need and there's a huge demand right uh you know uh, my friend um andrew gutman who's running for congress now in um in palm palms beach um he is you know he tried to start a school in new york and it was just it was just very difficult to, to get funding for it um, you know, you really need to have somebody come in and, and put a group of people together that to, to make it happen. Cause everybody's asking for it. Everybody's demanding it. They would love to have it. Um, but you know, I think there is a private school. There's a private boarding school that's thinking about opening up a school in Manhattan. Um, there's a, there's a, a, a Christian private school. that's very good. Um, you know, these schools don't want me to name them. You know why they don't want me to name them? They don't want to get attacked. They don't want to get attacked. They don't want right. to be known as the anti-woke school. But this is what parents, thousands of parents want. And they don't want to say that they want it because they have jobs at Goldman Sachs or they have jobs with these ESG companies 
So, you know, what's going to happen to their reputation, right? So there is this, like I said, there's this ecosystem which keeps people uh, silent, keeps them attached for reputational reasons. And, you know, the more as, as your wealth goes up, you have more to lose. And, you know, the most bold parents, the, the parents who that you see being strident, right? These are the, you know, these are the parents that know that like education is everything. They can't hire, you know, a private tutor to come in and tutor the kids. The public school is what they got. So they're going to fight for it and they're going to hold, you know, the, the school board to the fire. And when I see, you know, Jen Psaki complaining that Moms for Liberty is this fascist organization or right-wing extremist, that is the, that is the most uh, condescending form of elitism in my mind because it's saying, you know, how dare you? You know, how dare you get angry when your taxes go to pay for stuff that you don't want and you can't even go to, you know, you, you, you can't even take your money when you leave. You know, of course they're going to be angry. Uh, it's healthy that they're angry. You know, do I, do I think they should be violent? No, and they haven't been violent. A lot of the stories are just, I mean, I haven't heard one story that's actually true uh, about violence. Um, so I am, you know, I think there needs to be uh, a radical transformation. I guess I'm one of those radical transformers, but well, I think from a, in a different direction. This kind of goes back to the fundamental debate of, you know, whose kids are they? Are they the state's kids or are they the parents' kids? And we're starting to see this, you know, here and there, but, you know, it goes back even further to it takes a village, right? So, well, you, have... you know, if you hear someone say it takes a village, their presumption is that they're going to be a village elder, right? So, like, right. They, they have a village right. in mind that is run in a certain way, um, you know, for the benefit of the village. And what do they have in mind? So, the state, uh, sees itself as the village elder in the, right. in the you know the takes a village metaphor, um, and it's really just a it's sort of a collectivism uh, right talking horse right like we're just going to say this and make everybody feel good, and that's going to let us justify um, the level of control we we seek and you know certainly by the Biden administration saying things like you know they're all our kids right you know. They're all, no, they're not, oh, they're not your kids. Uh, and you're deluded if you think that's, that's going to, um, work anymore. I mean, if you, if you were getting results, right, if you had 80, 90% proficiency, maybe you could make that claim and people would trust you, but you don't, your, your schools are a failure. Uh, broadly, there are good schools in, in places, but you know, in, in many places they're, they're an abject failure. And in the worst neighborhoods in New York City, the parents want school choice, but their leaders are tied to the Democratic Party and the unions. So they shut them down. In fact, the school that I'm going to teach at in the fall, Vertex Partnership Academies, was sued by the AFT, the UFT, which is an affiliate of the AFT, because they didn't want any more charters. So this is a school in one of the lower middle class neighborhoods in the Bronx, uh, serving all black and brown children, okay, or mostly, almost all, whatever, and they're going to say, no, no, you don't have the right to do this. Um, this is an international baccalaureate school, um, and we're going to we're going to sue you because we don't believe you should be doing this. Uh, and the reason is because it's just they're just protecting their their money pot. Right. And who are they hurting? Yeah, I mean, 
you know, we could go on about this, but I think it's pretty clear that they're not about the students. They use the students as a virtue shield, you know, to, to, to make great pronouncements like, like Ms. Pringle did about Mrs. Pringle did about, um, you know, how noble the profession is and blah, 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 blah. But we all, you know, if, you know, there's a, there've been several former, you know, former union boss. I, I forget his name, uh, the NEA, a very honest man. He made it clear that, you know, we have power because we have money uh, and we collect this money and we use it for power. And, and it's not about the students. It's about, it's about the, uh, it's about our power. Yeah. Um, so you had um, another tweet in reference to the NEA about Saul Linsky. And I wanted to touch on that because I think we're at the stage, Saul Linsky's name was bandied about quite a bit about a decade ago. And today's parents, educators, activists, all those folks kind of forget about that. But mm-hmm. um, I assume based on your tweet that the reference to Linsky was talking about his power tactics. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's correct. And I didn't do a, you know, I, I couldn't take you line by line through Becky Pringle's speech and tell you how it relates right. to Linsky's 10 rules. Uh, but, uh, or 13 rules. I forget how many rules it was. Uh, but, you know, I think Linsky was a brilliant man. I mean, you got to give credit. The guy understood how to get things done. Um, he, yeah, there's connections to Hillary Clinton, his acolytes trained Obama as well. Um, you know, he's just had this tremendous influence in moving our culture in a direction through capturing institutions and, and being able to use leverage in a, an extremely effective way. And I, I, you know, I have to, I have to give him his due and the people who follow that because he's always been, um, I've read some things about him, but it really seems that, you know, he would take an idealist who would come into the organization and say, forget everything. Okay. This isn't about, you know, the virtue or your morality or whatever, how great your dream is. This is about power. We teach you how to get it. We teach you how to use it. We teach you how to keep it. That's what this is about. And, you know, you want it. You just don't know you want it. You're deluded. And so we're going to like, we're going to break you down. We're going to build you up. And, you know, a lot of the rules, I have to be honest, they're not unique to the left. I mean, uh, if I was a parent uh, reading this, I would use it. Uh, I would use it on to take back school boards uh, from the right. If I, if I was so inclined, like, you know, you kind of see this, there's that, there's that uh, rule number four. I'm looking it up now, make the enemy live up to its own book of rules. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you look at Montgomery County, uh, who would have predicted that the Christians and the Muslim community would unite to to organize for an opt-out for the gender ideology stuff for their kids? And so what is the left's book of rules? The left's book of rules is that, you know, we are intersectional, we respect marginalized voices, uh, you know, we are... Uh, the defenders of the, you know, the oppressed and yada, yada. Well, look, who's, look, who's protesting you. What are, where is your respect for those marginalized voices? Right. So that's, that's rule number four right there. And it's, it's great. Um, Ridicule is man's most potent weapon. Number five. Um, 
like the threat is usually more terrifying than the thing itself. I mean, I, I think you don't want to be Machiavellian uh, in a bad way. And I don't think Machiavelli was all was actually that bad. But, you know, the, the common parlance of Machiavellian, um, I think you need to sort of keep your moral focus on what's right for your children. But I think most parents have that. Like they, they have they have a greater moral center than some ideologue who's trying to transform society because, you know, um, because of some pie in the sky ideas about humanity. Uh, so I think, you know, I think there's opportunities there. Yeah. I, I think, um, and I, I mentioned this cause it was, you know, people on the right and I'm going back to 2010, 2012 timeframe. They were more familiar with Alinsky, the power tactics, um, you know, rule number five, rule number four, and they used it more efficiently. And then it's just kind of fell by the wayside. And partly because I think the activists from 10, 12 years ago have, you know, moved on in their lives. But Mm -hmm. I think um, to your point, whether it's Moms for Liberty or some of the other groups out there, when it comes to education, they need to do kind of go back and study that a little bit and put it to their advantage. Yeah. And maybe they are, I don't, I just don't know, but I think it's, I think that, look, we have, um, we have a democracy. It's not patty cake. It's not a cocktail party. You know, if everything up, up to the law, um, not any means necessary, it's any legal means necessary. Um, that includes arguing that includes, um, you know, being very strident. And if you look at the history of this country, we, we have a very, rambunctious country. I mean, that's kind of who we are. We're Americans, right? So if you look at 1860 to 1910, what were the election, what was the electioneering like back then? Well, it was pretty rowdy. Oh yeah. You know, it was people were, and it was rough and tumble. And, and I think that there's this, I actually think this obsession with civility is sort of over, overblown, to be honest, like beyond, I mean, we just need to sort of lose a lot of that preciousness and, and, and doesn't mean you have to be nasty you know you should try not to be nasty uh but you should really push for what you want i mean isn't that isn't that how democracy works or constitutional republic or whatever we have so supposed to yeah i mean and don't get bent out of shape right we let's 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 build up some thicker skins um isn't that what we want to impart to kids like be more resilient be more um Self-assured, like, don't let, don't be thrown if the other guy insults you. So what? Right. Well, Paul, this has been a fascinating conversation and, and I'm glad we connected. So what exactly does Terra Firma do? We do, um, peer support, uh, which is, you know, we'll have these small discussions We're in the summer we're down to one a week, but come in, um, come to our website, tfteach.org. Uh, and sign up and become a member. We have no dues. We're free. We, you come in and bring a problem to us that you're having at your school, maybe with administration, with colleagues, with a student, whatever, and we, we take it around the circle and we, we give you ideas, ways to deal with it. There's just so much, um, there's so much knowledge among a group of 12 to 14 teachers, usually the size of our meetings, um, and you know, that can really help reframe because a lot of times these teachers they come in and they're um they're too deep in it to see what what options they have and then we also offer professional development for school boards 
to retrain teachers. So uh, we, we talk about viewpoint diversity, the importance of not indoctrinating your children, the children politically, um, you know, resources for teaching um, American identity, um, resources for challenging the orthodoxy around political, racial, or gender identity. Uh, and we also offer placement and uh, hiring. So we were in contact with hiring managers at charter schools, classical charters, Christian charters, Jewish schools. And we can, if you're not happy in your current school, your public school, um, we could find you uh, a private school uh, that might be a better fit or help facilitate that. Or Because a lot of times these the, the private schools have trouble finding teachers that are aligned because the hiring pool is so, you know, hard left. Um, you know, if you mm-hmm. look at the, the general picture, so, you know, I've had hiring managers call, call and say, like, I, I hired these teachers. They said that they were aligned with the, with our beliefs. And now I find out they're, you know, they're handing out books to kids that are inappropriate. You know, how can I trust? I was like, well, you know, we give it a stamp, we give it our stamp of approval and we can tell you, like, we know this teacher very well. They've been in our meetings. We can vet them and we think they'd be a good fit. Now, are you only New York centered or do you deal with teachers all over the country? We deal with teachers all over the country. So, okay. if, you know, wherever you are, um, tfteach.org, look us up, sign up. There's a, there's an application. It's very brief. Just, we just want to get in touch and we'll meet with you one-on-one hear about what you're dealing with. Uh, we're coming out with a field manual, I hope, by the end of this year, um, tactics and strategies for how to cope with illiberal policies or liberal ideologies in your school. Um, and we're, we're very excited about that because we've been able to gather a, a whole lot of different strategies and tactics um, over the six months that we've been around. We've only been around since the beginning of the year. Wow. Okay. I thought it was a little bit longer than that. Nope. We're new. We're new. So now are you... Publicly, fu- not publicly funded, but are you uh, privately funded? Or are you getting donations? And yeah, we have we have donors, backers. We were five one c three, and you know we're we're plugging along. We're trying to grow, uh, and we're pretty excited about what we can offer teachers. Well, and great. if you want to be a member, you just have to be a practicing K twelve teacher, right? Public, private, homeschool, whatever. But we we really restrict it to that because. Um, yeah, administrators, it's a different thing. And, you know, we just want to keep it for teachers. Right. That's awesome. We should have actually led with this. So hopefully yeah, right. we, have, I'm, I'm... we have listeners all the way to the end. So, yeah. Anyway. Well, if you can, maybe you can drop the link in our, uh, no, in I definitely will do or whatever you do. Yep. Definitely do that. That would be great. So, well, Paul Rossi, I appreciate you coming on and, and it was good getting to know you, even though it was just over the weekend. So, Thank you so much for having me, and uh, this was a lot of fun. All right. Thanks. So that was Paul Rossi with the group Terra Firma. And as I mentioned, I'm going to leave a bunch of links under the audio portion of this episode, as well as Paul's bio. It is a very interesting topic, and he was a fantastic guest. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out, you can reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode or give us a call at 1-888-668-6466. Thanks for listening and have a great week. I don't want to waste my integrity 
I'm just a man living a one-night stand. I'll tell you what I need. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoy Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.